This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Interpretive Political and Social Science, a special series on the New Books Network. A decade has passed since the Arab Spring of 2011, during which an uprising in Egypt ended three decades of rule by Hosni Mubarak, but failed to alter fundamentally the country's social or political order. In a new book, Bread and Freedom, Egypt's Revolutionary Situation, published in 2021 by Stanford University Press, Mona El-Gobashi insists on treating the uprising as a political phenomenon deserving of inquiry, regardless of whether it succeeded in achieving its goals or not. Against the impulse to evade noisy details in a rush to explain why things went wrong, El-Gobashi resurrects the concept of a revolutionary situation so as to expound on what happens when state authority is severely assaulted or damaged, but does not collapse. Rather than ask, with the condescension of hindsight, why the outcome of the revolution was partial, ambiguous, perhaps failed, El-Gabashi turns her attention to its interior to show how the uprising created possibilities for how Egypt would or could or might yet be governed, possibilities that were and still are revolutionary. Mona El-Gabashi is a clinical associate professor in liberal studies at New York University, and she'll be talking with me, Nick Cheeseman, an associate professor at the Australian National University and currently a visiting fellow at the Baldy Centre for Law and Social Policy, University of Buffalo. Bread and Freedom was the joint winner of the 2022 Charles Taylor Book Award given annually by the Interpretive Methodologies and Methods Group of the American Political Science Association for the best book in political science that employs or develops interpretive methodologies and methods and the best book award of APSA's Middle East and North Africa politics section. Congratulations, Mona. Thank you so much, Nick. I'm sure that many of our listeners will be keen to hear from you about the particulars of those events in Egypt in 2011, but I'm going to indulge their patience a little because, you know, I have my own selfish reasons to want to begin with your category of analysis. What is a revolutionary situation and why not, as the song goes, just talk about revolution? Revolutionary situations is a minor concept in the history of the study of revolution, at least in the Anglo-American Academy. It has been overtaken by what most of us think of as a revolution, which is the idea of a revolutionary outcome or a violent transfer, a violent unscheduled transfer of state power, usually accompanied by a popular uprising. The reason I became aware of this concept and decided to structure the whole book around it as its anchoring foundational idea is because the Arab uprisings in Egypt, Tunisia, Sudan, Yemen, and so on, from the get-go, 
it was very clear that these were not going to be textbook revolutions along the models that have existed in the social science thinking on revolutions, by which I mean that the transfer of state power was going to be much more arduous, prolonged, and involve many, many actors than the standard social science models allow. Perhaps even more importantly, the conceptual frames that we've inherited from this literature compel us to think of revolutions as almost like dramas, where there are revolutionary actors with very clear visions for the kind of change that they want to implement, with equally clear counter-revolutionaries who are trying to defeat them. And most of the studies revolve around the drama between the revolutionaries who have justice and right on their side and counter-revolutionaries who are trying to avert them or, or suppress them. The Arab uprisings scrambled all of that simply by the sheer number of actors that were contending for state power in the very messy and prolonged and downright confusing period between when the popular mobilizations took off the ground and then the series of events or provisional regimes that happened over extended periods of time. So as you hinted in your introduction, one of the things I wanted to do was to bring back a sense of the immediacy and the complexity of those events, but to do so not to fetishize the events themselves, but simply to go back and try to reconstruct in a coherent way, what were these events? How did they play out simultaneously in time? And how might we reconstruct that instead of, as you said, to quickly jump to the conclusion that since these events were so extremely complex, they were very disheartening. They involved staggering amounts of state violence. They also involved lots of tedious political bureaucratic wrangling. Instead of somersaulting over all of that complexity, one of the things I wanted to do was to reconstruct those events and this concept of the revolutionary situation. So much of my research was basically trying to come up with the genealogy of this concept. I first encountered it in a study by Charles Tilley, his book, European Revolutions. And then I retraced his bibliography and went back to read where he had discovered and or was inspired by this concept, he was very open that he borrowed it from Leon Trotsky. And in turn, Leon Trotsky borrowed it from Vladimir Lenin, who first used it in 1915 to teach Bolsheviks how to recognize political opportunities, this very idea that you quoted in the introduction of a moment when there's a shift in state power, the state does not collapse, and it simply portends a period of protracted struggle over who is going to control the state and under what terms. It sounds like both for Tilly and for you, the concept does analytical work, which is very different from the engagement that Lenin or Trotsky would have had. After all, you were pointing to how it enables you to move beyond or through questions of revolutionaries and their intentions and their counter-revolutionary forces towards an alternative way of coming to terms with the events that are part of a revolutionary situation, whereas, of course, these were revolutionaries with very clear intentions. So how indeed did the concept evolve from the 1910s to the 2010s? What I found when I was looking back into these texts and the way that these this strange amalgam of Russian revolutionaries and American social scientists were revamping this concept is that one thing that Tilly did, along with others, such as, for instance, his fellow sociologist Arthur Stinchcombe, was that they took this concept 
And as you point out, they moved it from the terrain of revolutionary strategy and brought it into the terrain of analysts like us who are trying to understand what it might mean for a whole host of actors when state power comes undone, when the state's power is fragmented and for us becomes very visible. It's actually an incredible moment analytically for us to see what is usually concealed in the appearance of very coherent states with state builders and state leaders implementing policies, always anticipating consequences, no improvisation in what they do. It is a moment for an analyst to pry open this animal of the state. What Tilly and Stinchcombe were doing, were bringing back this notion of crisis, adding it or revising it along with the idea of a revolutionary situation and seeing what happens when a political order comes undone. But at the same time, there is not a coherent revolutionary vanguard to quickly take over the reins of the state and begin to build a new order. Most social scientists are interested in the process of building a new state by a new coherent vanguard revolutionary group. What's most interesting empirically and challenging analytically about the Arab uprisings is that there wasn't that quick coherent move from the assault on state power to the recovery of state power under new management. There were very protracted struggles that involved not just a myriad of social and political claimants within those countries, but of course, and this is a truism in revolution studies that is still evergreen, the idea that foreign governments are just as involved in the struggle for power as domestic claimants. And the Arab uprisings, of course, are extremely interesting in that regard because many of the states that experienced the toppling of a leader were U.S. allies. And so the United States, the European Union, the Israeli government had a vested interest in how the struggle for power would play out and were involved in mechanisms, both very overt, but also more concealed, to influence the struggle for power, to support various revolutionary and anti-revolutionary factions, to tamp down the extraordinary uncertainty and indeterminacy of such moments that are called revolutionary situations. So to sum up, Tilly had this beautiful, pithy way of putting it. He said, a revolutionary situation is a conjuncture of both extreme opportunity and extreme threat. And so I use that as a guide to trace the really confusing permutations. One of the things they learned from your book, though, is that for Tilly also this concept was an outgrowth of contention, that overarching concern that you had with modes of contentious politics, of public mobilization towards particular goals. So is the difference between a revolutionary situation and other moments of contention in its extremities? Or are there other qualities that distinguish it from those other social and political phenomena with which he and his co-authors were concerned? So the answer is yes to both of those pegs, and I'll explain how. On the one hand, the most counterintuitive notion of the revolutionary situation that goes so much against what we tend to think of as revolutions is that revolutions are ruptures, and they begin almost a new epoch in a country's politics, that you need a different vocabulary, and different imagery to study an epoch of revolution from routine politics. What Tilly does 
And I think it's extremely subversive and wasn't picked up, I think, partly because it goes against the grain of how we think of revolution is that he says, and I call it a deflationary definition of revolution, that revolutionary situations emerge from a country's routine political contention. It's not like a switch that goes on and immediately starts a new epoch in a country's politics. It's a driving to the extreme of the same struggles that we see among some of the same contenders. Now, how is it different? The reason it's different is that because the state is under unprecedented assault and because the stakes are so high, the nature of the struggle starts to take on the form of what he called multiple sovereignty. Political struggle takes on both the rhetorical and the material aspect of struggles for supremacy in the political field. What does that look like? Let me give you an example in the Egyptian context. The Egyptian state is one of the most centralized in the world, not just in the global south. It has a very long history behind it, and it has always presented itself as the main actor and the main unitary actor in Egypt's politics. This revolutionary situation was a moment when different contenders, both within the state and within civil society, started to make claims for supreme political authority over the polity. So for instance, the Tahrir Square encampment, the camp that many, many citizens engaged in Tahrir Square in the famous 18 days that led to the ouster of Hosni Mubarak, but then continued unabated for almost three years, people filling Tahrir Square, Almost always, regardless of what their causes were or what their grievances were, they always made claims in the name of popular sovereignty, that they had the right as the collective to set the agenda for how policies would be made, how elections would run, how economic policies would be revised, how the issue of lustration or transitional justice for former regime officials, they always made those claims, however variant they were, in the terms of popular sovereignty. The Egyptian military, on the other hand, the rump of the state that survived the ouster of Mubarak and took power in his place with U.S. backing under the transitional plan that they put in place, that they would be dictators of the transition. And I use the term dictator in the classical Roman sense of a temporary executive that takes power in the face of a national emergency in order to set the stage for a new political dispensation, which they promised would be for six months and to hold elections. The Egyptian military soon started making claims to supreme political authority using also the language of political sovereignty that is codified in Egypt's republican constitutions under the phrase, the army belongs to the people. And it's not a coincidence that that phrase exists in Egypt's constitutions because it was put there by the original military conspirators of the 1952 coup that abolished Egypt's monarchy and set up the republic. They drew on that heritage of the military having a sacral mission to build the state and defend the nation. Another group of collective actors who also made claims to sovereignty were Egypt's judges. And when I say Egypt's judges, I have in mind at least three different sectors of judges, constitutional court judges, administrative court judges, and cassation court judges, the highest apex court of the ordinary justice system. You can imagine the riot of sovereignties that ensued. And I found Tilly's idea of multiple sovereignty to illuminate what looks to be utter political chaos. And my uh, venture in the book is to say, 
we can't look at Egypt's democratic transformation with such tame tools as the concept of democratic transformation has come to be. We need a concept that gives us more leverage and purchase over the intense forms of conflict that ensued. And we also can't go on using these heavily loaded terms like Egypt's failed democratic transition or the revolution that wasn't and so on. These sort of judgmental or borrowing a term from the European historian Christopher Clark, I call these prosecutorial narratives that assign praise and blame and essentially blame the actors for not coming to an agreement. Looking at it with a sociological Tilean Stinchcomian lens, conflict is going to be of the essence when state power comes under severe assault. One of the things that you emphasize in the book is that in the revolutionary situation, we have these passages through openly contested multiple sovereignties, but working from the sociological literature, the point you also want to make is that it's not the kinds of claims to which you're referring to a moment ago that themselves matter, but rather whether or not those claims are honoured, how efficacious, as it were, they are in a given moment. So to stay in the Egyptian revolutionary situation, how did those different groups and interests, citizens mobilising for a different type of political order, go about getting their claims heard and honoured by others? Mm, That's right. The issue isn't the proliferation of claims, because that's a feature of politics in all times and all places. And what distinguishes a revolutionary situation from ordinary politics is that these rival claims to sovereignty have publics and constituencies or are honored, as you well put it. Here's an example from uh, the Egyptian case. For six months in Egypt, from January 2012 to June 2012, with the seating of the first democratically elected parliament in Egypt's Republican history, there emerged a very interesting divide two rival claims to popular sovereignty. First, Parliament was making that claim under the justification that it was elected in a free and fair and internationally sanctioned contest that did not witness what Egyptian elections had always witnessed, which is state violence against both opposition candidates and opposition voters, and that they had the right to now not only seize legislative power from the ruling generals, but they also had the right to chart Egypt's new charter, that is the constitution. That claim, though it did have its supportive public, not only the voters who elected those parliamentarians, but also their political partisans who supported the actual political parties that constituted parliament. On the other side, there was a rival political uh, authority, and that was the crowds that filled Tahrir Square and made a claim to popular sovereignty and started to contest parliament's monopoly claim on representing the people. Who were these people in Tahrir? Well, some of them were the actual voters who had elected the the parliament, but quickly became disenchanted or disaffected with parliament's inability to address the avalanche of grievances and problems that had piled up over the 30-year dictatorship of Mubarak and, and even preceding Mubarak. So many of them were disaffected voters. Many others were hostile to the political parties that constituted parliament. They were rival ideological camps. A total of 72 
percent of parliament seats were dominated by four distinct and vying Islamist parties. Most of the literature lumps them together as Islamists, as if they are all in cahoots and they're all the same. They're actually very distinct and have intense rivalries among them. But for the non-Islamist camp, they were coherent and they were their adversaries. And they started to contest their claim to represent popular sovereignty, not just rhetorically, but they started to contest that claim of parliamentary legitimacy by going out into the streets, demanding that parliament be dissolved by court order and new elections held. So those six months were extremely conflictual. They were extremely confusing because here you have not a military claiming popular sovereignty versus a civilian opposition. You have two rival wings of the civilian opposition, as it were, one that conceived of popular sovereignty in institutional parliamentary terms, and another that conceived of parliamentary sovereignty as the power and the dynamism of mass protests that had toppled Mubarak to begin with and made the claim to having the, the right of popular recall, as they put it. Can you illustrate for us how the revolutionary situation enables you to do a different kind of interpretive work from that that you would do? Were you, for instance, adopting the lens of hybrid regime types or competitive authoritarianism terms and categories that have been used routinely? in the case of Egypt and also other countries where there's the kind of competition for power and the potential for multiple sovereignties of the sort that we see emerging in 2011. What the revolutionary situation concept helped me see in particular, both in reference to the literatures that you mentioned, the political science literatures on hybrid regimes, but also the sociology literature on revolution. I divide the approaches to revolution in, in three. So we have the canonical causes and consequences approach. This is the one that dominates the study of revolution in the post-World War II era in the Anglo-American Academy, most exemplified by Theda Scotchpole's field-defining work, States and Social Revolutions, published in 1979. She really set the tone here for how people should study revolutions by looking at the antecedent causes and then the consequences. And that is a venerable research tradition that is very powerful for giving us a sense of how revolutions come, as she put it. They're not made. She was arguing against the voluntaristic idea that revolutions are made by revolutionaries, so very much against the Leninist and Trotskyist point of view. She said they come as a result of pressures that build up on states in the international arena and also in the domestic taxation arena. That's one way to do it. The limitations of that are that if you notice, if you focus on causes and consequences, you analyze everything but the revolutionary struggle for power itself. And so it's very powerful on the one hand for getting us to understand where this came from, that is a question of the roots of a revolution. But not only is it deterministic, it literally somersaults over the period of power contestation because it's very concerned not with the content of that extraordinarily confusing period, it's concerned with the outcomes how the revolutionaries then build a new state. A dissenting point of view that comes also from the tradition of modern sociology is what I call the experiential approach to revolution. The experiential approach is also very dissatisfied with the structural Scotspolian approach, and it wants to emphasize 
contingency, indeterminacy, and above all, confusion. It tries to reconstruct the lived experience of what it's like to live through a revolution, not just for revolutionaries, but for ordinary citizens, for people who may not support a revolution. What was it like to live through such an extraordinary period of daily chronic indeterminacy and uncertainty. And here I have in mind the brilliant book by Charles Kurtzman, The Unthinkable Revolution in Iran, that reconstructs how ordinary Iranians experienced day-to-day the 18-month mobilization period between the protests in 1977, the initial protests, to the final ouster of the Shah in February 1979. These two approaches have been very influential, and I've learned a lot from them. But my study was different. My goal was neither simply to confine the inquiry to causes and consequences. If I had done that, then the book would have been all about the Mubarak period and how it was hurtling towards revolution through structural contradictions and so on. So it would have been a highly deterministic narrative that wouldn't have dealt with the revolutionary period at all. The experiential approach as attractive as it is, would have meant that I would have to interview people, even in retrospect, to get them to relive and reconstruct the moments of confusion, exhilaration, intense fear, talking amongst each other. My book incorporates a lot of voices, but it is not a study of the lived experience. Like a camera, it moves between different sites and scenes of the revolution. It moves outside Cairo to peripheral uh, regional towns, for instance. It moves away from Tahrir Square to places that most studies of revolution wouldn't include, such as an entire chapter on the aforementioned parliament and its internal dynamics. The proposal that I'm making in the book, or the venture, is to say revolutions are one of those things in the analysis of social studies. They're so incredibly complex. So much is happening. And so it's not a matter of deciding this is the best approach to take. And now we must supplant the structural approach of Scotchpole with my approach that I call a configurational approach. Nor is it to, for instance, say, Only the experiential approach can give us a sense of what it was like to relive those months and years. What I was trying to open up, it was this space to say, look, revolutions represent the most interesting, the most baffling, the most confounding moments in political order in any society. And it would make no sense to try to legislate a particular approach as the superior one. But let's see what the approaches are on offer. And my contribution is to resurrect this approach that I think has been neglected for whatever reason and to write this book in an experimental vein and say, here's what such an approach would look like. How does this help us see what happened in this particular place and time in ways that the structuralists and the experientialists would do very differently? Mona, we'll take a short break here for a sponsor's message, since these messages are one of the ways that the New Books Network stays afloat. Another way is for listeners in the US to buy books featured on the network by clicking through the links on our webpage to bookshop.org. The good news is it's not Amazon. And what's more, a small part of each purchase goes to keeping the New Books Network free and available to listeners worldwide. So if you're interested in this book or others that are being featured, then please do click through and consider buying them that way. 
Welcome back to New Books in Interpretive Political and Social Science with Mona Elkabashi talking with me, Nick Cheeseman, about her bread and freedom. Mona, before the break, you mentioned that you didn't do interviews to relive the experiences that people had had during the time of the revolutionary situation in Egypt, yet your book is full of voices, and indeed it is. So where have those voices come from? There are uh, two reasons why I didn't do interviews. The first is practical. This book was written at the height of the counter-revolution, the regime that overthrew the democratically elected government in 2013 and proceeded to build the contemporary regime that exists today. And the book's last chapter is an attempt to theorize that. It's sort of the mirror image of what happens when the revolution is defeated, the state is not captured by the new forces. It's actually captured by a fragment of the old forces, and they begin to coherently or at least very purposively build a counter-revolutionary order. And so one of the tragedies of the Egyptian revolutionary situation is that Egypt's politics have become the biggest casualty. Egypt had a very lively politics before 2011. It today has almost no semblance of those extremely contentious and plural politics. So it was an impossibility to do interviews in the country itself. That's not to say that uh, interviews cannot be done with the exile community, the now sprawling exile community of Egyptian revolutionaries and other critics of the current military regime. And I think there are works in the pipeline that will be drawing on those interviews, and I very much look forward to them. The second reason, though, was not just practical and logistical. Since I was interested in reconstructing these events and putting them in some sort of coherent analytical frame, I couldn't rely on people's memories. As it is, people's memories are associative and fragmentary. One of the most humbling things about writing this book for me was that I realized how much I had mangled events in my mind simply because of the passage of time or because of the dense and confusing nature of events. Over and over again, I would mess up the chronology in my mind only to go back into the record and see that things happened differently. So that really strengthened my resolve to avoid interviews because interviews would be subject to people's narratives and memories. And that is a very different kind of study very valuable, but a very different kind of study. Therefore, I was led to what I call the revolution's documentary record hidden in plain sight. Newspaper accounts, principally, and newspaper accounts contain a wealth of information. They're like warehouses of information that contain many different kinds of data, as it were. Not only do they contain the voices that I drew on, they contain a very wide range of voices. And so the Egyptian press was full of voices that hadn't been tapped before in a social scientific study. So I made extensive use of those. The other aspect of the documentary record were the primary documents that emerged from the revolutionary struggle itself. So not only the thousands upon thousands of manifestos that were self-printed and self-published and self-circulated by the many different groups and campaigns and initiatives that mushroomed during this period, but also documents from state agencies, the most important of which were court records, court decisions, police transcripts, investigations by prosecutors of 
members of the old regime and political activists who were arrested on the streets. And I combined or collated this scattered archive that exists everywhere on the internet. And I mean, it was extraordinary. And one of the things that I learned from this project, first of all, this documentary record, I don't foresee it ever becoming an archive, of course, because not only was it much of it was produced by these popular forces that are now being crushed, but that any state, any counter-revolutionary state has a vested interest in suppressing these memories, suppressing these accounts. And so it will take a lot of crowdsourced and individual effort by people, scholars like me, activists, journalists, people who have written their personal experiences to self-publish. And a, a dream of mine would be if we were able to collectively come up with some sort of archiving platform to put all of these traces, documentary traces of various forms down to slogans and chants and stickers that were produced during Egypt's triennium, the period from 2011 to 2014. Because I think while my book is an attempt in that direction, it has barely scratched the profundity of this ocean of documents that exists and is crying out for for more people to pour over it and to extract uh, alternative narratives from it. So you've spoken to the counter-revolutionary conditions in which the book was written, and you do point out at, at various stages in the book, including the conclusion that the military regime has been hard at work producing its own interpretations and reinterpretations of events. So going to what you just said, is this book an act of political resistance? And I ask that question partly because although in many ways it feels like a very personal book, you don't really speak to your political or personal motivations. You know, this is very true, and it's an outcome of two things. One is my positionality. I was born in Egypt. We immigrated to the United States, where I received the rest of my primary education up to graduate school. And it wasn't clear or foreordained that I would become a scholar of Egyptian politics. It happened as so many fateful turns in life happen on a summer trip to Egypt when I was an undergraduate, and I found myself accompanying human rights lawyers on their rounds, checking up on political prisoners. And that was the moment when something captured my attention about political contention in this country. And I crafted that into a career studying Egypt's contentious politics. So the distance that you picked up on in the book, in the sense that I did not want to insert myself overtly into it, was partly also a epistemological stance. I didn't trust my own feelings. I was in Egypt for those six months that I mentioned that are the subject of chapter four. But nowhere in chapter four will you see an ethnographic sensibility or even a reconstruction ethnographically of where I was. And that's because after the trauma of the way this revolution ended, and I started to reflect on it, I found that I was looking back on it with very different eyes than when I was on the streets. And what I mean by that is not politically. I think my commitment to this political revolution is evident on every page, but epistemologically, I found that when I looked at it in retrospect, I saw it as if from a top of a mountain, as it were, and I saw all of these things happening simultaneously. 
in a way that when I was in the alleyways or looking at what was in front of me and the immediacy of what was in front of me in those six months in the field, it was like two different people. And that was the insight that I had. It was that moment. And I remember where I was in the library when I was writing it. I remember having a a very strange experience of vertigo, because when I looked back in retrospect at a particular moment from the perspective of the documents, I remembered where I was years earlier and how I felt about those events. And they were so different that I felt that here I was onto something about the experiential versus the configurational. If I were to write an experiential rendition, perhaps, or a reconstruction based on my own experience, it would look extremely different. I think that's as it should be. I really learned something about the vantage of a, if I may be allowed to assign myself that term, a historian versus a person who was experiencing the events, both as a citizen of Egypt, but also as a scholar of Egyptian politics who lives now outside Egypt, but was there very frequently before the revolution and during its first phases. I think the point that you want to make, the thread uh, that I saw running throughout the text, uh, keeping an epistemological line of sort between your own positionality and the analysis is one thread. There's another which you point to explicitly in the book between the analytic narrative itself and the self-understandings of participants, and you were gesturing to that distinction a moment ago. Where does that leave us if we think about this? I'm going to put the onus on you here. Having won the Charles Taylor Book Award, if we think about this as a work of interpretive political and social science, you're not explicit about it being in that genre. Occasionally, you do use the language of interpretation. You talk about, for instance, your approach as one of interpretive selection. Nevertheless, doesn't have an interpretive agenda, if you will. So I'm keen to try and think with you about what the specific qualities are that make this book one that we can class as being an interpretive political and social science and therefore appropriately on this particular series of the New Books Network. So one of the most edifying aspects of researching and writing this book, and I didn't know it was going to be one of the most edifying because it ended up also being one of the most frustrating. The book, when it went to press and I could no longer make any changes and so on, something very strange started happening. I started coming upon all of these studies (laughs) revolution that I hadn't seen in the process of research. Isn't it always the case, by the way? (laughs) (laughs) I I don't know. It felt like there was this some power out there that is throwing these things in my lap after I've done the book. So on the one hand, it was exhilarating because I was literally transformed by the experience of writing this book. And I started to see the world in a different way. And it was almost like the world was responding back at me by showing me things. And in this regard, I want to share with you and with listeners this discovery I made. I will explain how it's relevant to your profound question. I came upon this luminous study by Paul Cohen called History in Three Keys about the Boxer Uprising in China. And It was just another one of those strange vertigo moments when you see something in front of you and you have both a sense of extraordinary recognition and a sense of utter surprise. Here's this book that does what I was grappling with while writing my own book. And what he does beautifully and very elegantly and light-handedly, I should add, is that he 
presents this event, the Boxer Uprising, from three different perspectives. From the perspective of historian, the Boxers as event, from the perspective of the participants and their lived experience, and then history as myth from the perspective of later political actors who drew energy from the uprising for their own political projects and by necessity crafted narratives that were myths. And I think Paul Cohen, the historian of China, has presented to us a challenge that you can achieve a kaleidoscopic study of revolutions within the covers of one book by having one section looking at this event from the vantage of a historian, one section looking at the event from the vantage of the lived experience of the those who experienced it, including, of course, those who experienced it traumatically and not joyously, and then a section exploring the later uses, misuses, mythifications, vilifications of this event by later political actors. You can imagine, Nick, I think my both joy and utter despair when I saw this book, because it presented to me the alternative of how one could have written a book about Egypt's uprising or any contemporary or historical moment by using this kaleidoscopic narrative. Well, you may not have written that book, but this is a book that is beautifully written. One of the things I really like about it, as you already know, is really the richness of the description and the subtlety of the prose. And I think that it's that intertwining of the interpretive work that you're doing with the description that makes it so effective. It's a large book. It's unusually large at these days of slim monographs, and yet it really is a page turner. It reads briskly. It moves the reader along. So you may not have written the book that Cohen did, but you wrote something which is really very impressive. So the question that follows from that is, can you give us some insights into the writing practices that did lead to the book that was published and perhaps any reflections that you have in addition to what you've said already on how to write of revolutionary situations? So the really educating thing about this book was this for me was a re-education, by which I mean, and I think this will be relevant to the interpretive aspect. For me, this was going underground and grappling with the legacies of my graduate education, was, which was extremely positivist to the point of uh, dogmatism. And it was a moment that was very liberating for me because I knew that I wanted to write a different kind of study, but I didn't know how. And I did so much independent reading before embarking on writing one word of this book, because I felt like I was unlearning a set of tools and ways to see the world, the causes and consequences, the enumerating the failures of a particular political project, like the the revolution, the the stance of the all-knowing analyst that I think Charles Taylor critiqued so beautifully, so profoundly, and also so respectfully that he was trying to speak to mainstream political science and puncture the hubris and the attitude with which they approached complex things like entire societies. In this vein, I also want to share that one of the moments that was most edifying for me was coming upon Albert Hirschman's classic article, The Search for Paradigms as a Hindrance to Understanding. This is a classic piece that he wrote that starts off as an ostensible review of two books. 
and he lays out the different sensibilities of two books on Latin America and why he cleaves to the sensibility of the interpretive frame rather than the all-knowing political scientist pointing out the failures of what the actors did and presenting his research as the key to the politics of a particular place and time. And so these were my new sort of buttresses or my new tools that I used in my re-education. And once I started to grapple with these things, I hesitate to make this sound more orderly than it was because it really was very confusing on a day-to-day basis. But following the trail of the documents, the more documents that I read, the more they led me to other documents and then other documents. And then pretty soon I began to teach myself how to construct these narratives of events in a way following the documents, but also keeping my analytical voice clear so that the reader can understand that there could be a variant interpretation of these very same documents. And I was very keen in the endnotes to give very precise and complete citations so that other readers may follow the trail of the documents. And it would make me so ecstatic if other researchers can take up the task of looking at the same set of documents and different sets of documents and coming up with alternative renditions. Because I think right now we need many, many more studies of the Egyptian and, and the other cases of the Arab uprisings. We have yet to fully understand what happened. And so you mentioned this may be an act of resistance, the book. I see it also as an act of documentary preservation, because again, so much of this is being lost very, very quickly because we're still living in the aftermath. And so the, the greatest thing I would hope for is that people do more studies using the documents, presenting different alternative interpretations of the very same documents that I looked at, and creating a body of uh, second generation studies of the Arab uprisings. What about you yourself? What are your plans now? Do you intend to stay in that mode and place of inquiry or have other things caught your interest since completing this manuscript? I think I'm going to now tackle a monster, and that is how Egyptians use the administrative courts as an instrument of political claims making, but also how the judges on those administrative courts not only set precedent and jurisprudence, but engage in a sort of activism of their own against the executive This is a topic that I first encountered in the field. I wrote a little bit of my dissertation about it, but the topic is so vast and multi-dimensional that I've put it off working on it for years and years and years because I uh, am intimidated by it. So maybe now I'll have the courage to go back and, and start to chip away at it. A revolutionary situation wasn't as intimidating as work on the administrative courts. <laughs> as a scholar of law and politics, I think you understand how the ocean that is law and politics and administrative courts. So I'll leave it for you to imagine how that topic is even more intimidating. <laughs> 
I, I can't really leave it there. I'm going to have to promise one or two more questions before we close, because I did see in the narrative in the book the part the judiciary was playing, perhaps for, for empirical reasons, but also I think for analytic ones, becoming more and more prominent in the, the later chapters. And clearly you're drawing on and benefiting from work of scholars who are in the study of law and politics and law and society, people like Nathan Brown and, and Tamim Mustafa. So what is it specifically about the administrative rather than the constitutional courts that's attracting your interest? You alluded to it, but I'd be pleased to hear a little bit more. And what more can and should be done on the judiciary in enabling revolution and buttressing counter-revolution? The administrative courts in Egypt are the invisible actors that make it possible for suits to be seen by the Supreme Constitutional Court. The Supreme Constitutional Court's rules in Egypt don't allow for direct petitioning from citizens. Every case that goes up before the Supreme Constitutional Court has to be referred by either a lower primary court or an administrative court. And so as Tamar Mustafa in his brilliant study on the Supreme Constitutional Court mentions, all of the cases that are brought up are brought up by the administrative courts spent much time in Egypt before the revolution, going to court sessions in the administrative court building. And I found a world of political contention there. And what is so significant about it, Nick, and what I'm trying to now grasp is every lawsuit, no matter how mundane, brings together at least four sets of actors, the claimants themselves, the defendants within a government agency, by definition, administrative courts exist to adjudicate disputes between citizens and government officials, the judges who are the literally the arbiters between the citizen plaintiffs and the government defendants, and then last but not least, the increasingly important role of Egypt's print and audiovisual media as key mediators in covering and making of administrative litigation a thing in the past 15 years. I want to probe this world and what it means, moving away a little bit from questions of government and opposition and regime change to what politics looks like, daily politics look like in an authoritarian regime. Mona Al-Kubashi, we have a lot more to talk about, obviously, but for now, let me just thank you for joining me for this lucky 13th episode of New Books in Interpretive Political and Social Science to discuss bread and freedom. Thank you so much, Nick, and for hosting this fabulous podcast. Listeners, if the episode has held your interest, then you might like to listen to the previous interview in the series with the other recipient of the 2022 Charles Taylor Book Award. That's Anastasia Shesternina on her mobilizing in uncertainty. Or for more on Egypt, Elizabeth S. Kassab talking on the Middle Eastern Studies channel about her enlightenment on the eve of revolution, the Egyptian and Syrian debates. You could find those episodes and all the other on our series homepage, which you can reach by clicking the button Academic Partners of the New Books Network website in the top menu bar. And you can also hear them wherever you get your podcasts via our host channel, New Books in Political Science.